right, so who knows what Oct this upcoming October the 31st is 2017. What's special about October 31, 2017? Anybody know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so Reformation Day. Anything special about this particular Reformation Day? It's going to be the 500th anniversary of the, the, the beginning, the launching of the Protestant Reformation by Martin Luther. And uh, as such, it's going to be in the news a good bit. And one of the things that prompted me to want to give this and similar talks in recent months is that I'm absolutely convinced and I've already seen that you're going to be inundated with a whole lot of nonsense about the Reformation. All right. Stuff that I believe is, uh, is absolutely uh, poppycock. Now, the, some of the form that that nonsense will take, <clears throat> one of them is you're going to be hit with a lot of triumphalist polemics from both sides of the Reformation divide. Um, and uh, so, for instance, I, got a, I, had, I was asked to respond to an article in a local paper, local Alabama paper, written by a Baptist pastor that was uh, just a full-out assault on the Catholic Church and, and glorifying Luther for the wonderful Reformation that he had brought about and, uh, and attacking the Church with hackneyed stereotypes. And I had to write a refutation of that. Um, but you're going to hear the same thing from the Catholic side, that you know, Luther was a demon from hell who had nothing constructive to offer. And I've, I've seen both sides. And uh, you know, in the Reformation era itself, it was very common to swap accusations of being the Antichrist. Everybody knew the Pope was the Antichrist, unless you were Catholic, and then Luther was the Antichrist. And, uh, and that's, that's not very helpful, I think. I think it obscures understanding. And I believe that we're at a period in history where it's important that we learn to appreciate uh, other traditions um, and see where we can work together and where we can help one another. Uh, anybody know what Russell Vault and Amy Barrett have in common? Those names mean anything to anybody here. All right. I bet Jack Nelson knows. All right, no? Okay, well, Russell Vault and, and Amy Barrett were both nominees very recently this year to offices in the federal government, one in the executive branch and one in the judicial branch. Um, Russell Vault is an evangelical Christian. He's an evangelical Protestant Christian. And Amy Barrett is a Roman Catholic who's a law professor at Notre Dame. Um, what they have in common, other than being nominees to federal office, is that both of them were assaulted by senators, United States senators, and ruled unfit for, for government office on the basis of their Christian faith. Uh, Bernie Sanders attacked Russell Vaught publicly and said that because of his evangelical Protestant beliefs, he was unfit for, unfit for public office. And Dianne Feinstein uh, coined a really wonderful phrase, I think. She said that we're all going to own this one, I think, for the next hundred years. She said to Amy Barrett... Um, Dogma lives loudly within you. And I thought, you know, and I've seen t-shirts that now say dogma lives loudly within me. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the long and the short of it is that this is something that has drawn or needs to draw, I believe, Protestants and Catholics closer together because we're in confrontation with a public sphere that's increasingly hostile to any form of Christian faith. And so uh, sterile uh, triumphalist polemics um, uh, while they're going to continue to happen, need to, be, need to be transcended to a certain extent. So that's one form of the nonsense that you're going to be hit with. Um, the other one is a naive ecumenism. All right? Faced by a common enemy, there's a temptation, I think, to say there are no differences between Protestant and Catholics. It's all been reconciled. You know, Luther was fundamentally right about you know, some of these key issues, and the Catholic Church needs to get on board. Um, and uh, sometimes discussions of ecumenical dialogues like the, the Catholic-Lutheran Joint Declaration on Justification, which did not intend to elaborate differences but only to settle on commonalities, is misinterpreted as teaching that Catholics and Protestants now agree on fundamental questions and the, the, the Reformation is over. I was actually asked to review a book recently 
uh, by a Catholic author whose name I won't repeat because I don't want you to go out and read the book, um, whose premise of his book was that the Reformation is over and we're now all on the same page and the differences are you know, relatively minor. Well, I, I reject that thesis because as a convert to the Catholic Church, if I really believed that the Reformation was over and Catholics and Protestants fundamentally agreed on the most important issues, I never would have become a Catholic. Right? That was my motive for coming into the Catholic Church. So I think we need to avoid triumphalist polemics. We also need to steer clear of a naive ecumenism. Um, so what do I want to accomplish today in this discussion of the Reformation? Um, I would like you to walk away confident in your Catholic faith, but not naive. Not naive either. You know, when I became a Catholic, I went to my parents and told them I was going to become a Catholic. And that was a difficult conversation, as it is for many converts. And they mistakenly thought that I was becoming Catholic to thumb my nose at my Presbyterian tradition. That They thought that I had been hurt or wounded by a Presbyterian church and that I was rejecting the tradition I was raised in rather than positively embracing Catholicism. It was kind of a rebellious act on my part to thumb my nose at the tradition that I grew up in. And my dad pulled me aside and he said, um, he said to me, he said, you know, David, just because the church has something wrong with it, you don't have to leave it. And I said, Dad, you've never said a truer word. And he went, oh. But he never got on my case about being Catholic again. And that's sort of what the perspective I'd like to bring to you today about the Protestant Reformation. That just because a church has something wrong with it, you don't have to leave it. And I want to try to unpack a little bit the nature of what that wrong was. I don't want to uh, today spend a lot of time refuting the fundamental premises of Protestantism. All right, you can, if you want to hear that, you can tune into my radio show because people call up every day and say, I'm not a Catholic because of this, that, and the other thing. And it's usually Reformation polemics. And I go through in detail and I argue with them about the content of Christian faith. That's not what I'm going to do here today. Um, what I want to do is set a context and help you have some historical understanding for why the Reformation had the purchase that it did. What was going on in the 16th century that so many people found this very novel construction of Christian faith compelling. And it was extremely novel. There's no place else in the world other than early modern Latin uh, North uh, Western Europe where the particular elaboration of Christian faith that we call Protestantism emerged. It didn't happen in Coptic Egypt or Ethiopia or Syria or, or Byzantium. And so the kind of naive sense that this sort of emerges out of the pages of the New Testament is falsified by history. All right, what was it about that time and place that made Protestantism seem compelling. That's really what I want to do. Um, today is not going to be primarily uh, recounting my conversion story. That's, a, that's something I'm happy to do, but it's not what I want to do today. Instead, it's going to be recapitulating some of the historical discoveries that I made as an academic, because right? that's what brought me to the Catholic faith was historical study of the Reformation. Recapitulating some of the discoveries that I made as an academic that opened up my mind to the possibility that Catholicism might be true and that the way I had construed history before was false. Um, so it's not going to be a refutation of Protestantism per se, um, nor is it going to be comprehensive. I, one of the things that you need to guard against in any kind of historical study is monocausational explanation. The idea that you just need one key to interpret a complex historical event that obscures rather than clarifies. I don't believe there was one cause of the Reformation. There were many, and we're not going to be able to touch on all of them today. I just want to highlight and touch a few things that I suspect you have never heard before. All right? That's why I'm giving the talk, to teach stuff that you've not heard before that I hope will clarify and give you something to walk away and think about. All right, so we're going to be doing some exploration of depth and context. Now, 
I want to I want to paint a picture for you, a, a visual image of where I'm going. I'm going to tell you a story from my own life quite recently. I have a son who is a freshman at St. Bernard's Preparatory School in Coleman, and he lives up there with the monks five days a week, and then he comes home and stays with us on the weekends. And we dropped him off in August, and uh, the day we left him there, we went to Mass with the monks at St. Bernard's. And how many of you all have ever been to Mass with the monks at St. Bernard's? It's a beautiful experience. You know, you better not be in a hurry. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so we sat there for this Mass that lasted at least, you know, at least an hour and a half, and it was replete with chant and Latin and English. And, and uh, you know, I thought that uh, Father Abbott's homily, um, it, it, was, it was really outstanding. And he drew on the tradition of monastic spirituality and asceticism. But he also was sensitive to the teaching of the council and to modernity. And I thought it was very well formulated. And I sat there and I listened to the beautiful music and the chant. And the liturgy was well performed, well, well celebrated, I should say. And the architecture, of course, is highly traditional in some respects. In other respects, it's a bit modern. And, uh, but the whole effect was beautiful and aesthetic and rich and, and nuanced. And, uh, of course, you know, having all the students there was delightful. And as I left, I thought you know, it was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. It would have been utterly unintelligible to me 20 years ago. Utterly unintelligible. Everything that I enjoyed about this liturgy was something that I had to be trained to. I had to read my way into. I had to study my way into this tradition in order to fully appreciate it. If I just plucked somebody out of First Baptist Church of wherever and dropped them in this liturgy, they would not have known what was going on. Okay, That is not an argument against the tradition at all, right? because it's precisely the liturgical, theological richness of the Catholic tradition that made me a Catholic. But it, it is to demonstrate something of the catechetical and evangelistic burden that Catholics have today and that Catholics had in the 16th century in conveying why somebody would want to be a Catholic. Do you know what the most frequent reason people give is when asked why they left the Catholic Church? I mean, this is what Pew Research shows. Why do people leave the Catholic Church? Two out of three times. It's a very simple reason. The, the answer is that I didn't feel that my spiritual needs were being met, which is a simple way of saying nobody ever taught me how to engage this incredibly rich tradition. Okay, It's very simple. We have, a, we have an enormous catechetical burden as Catholics, which is also a privilege. All right, How well we execute that catechetical ministry, how well we teach people to embrace the tradition, the riches of the liturgy, the theological tradition, will determine how, how well they're able to integrate it into their life meaningfully. And our failure in that regard is one of the principal reasons that people leave the church. And I would argue today, and this is what I want to help you see, the same thing was true in the 16th century. All right, now, my own personal thesis on the Reformation is that the Reformation was a symptom of the church's own pastoral efforts, all right? Both of the church's successes and of the church's failures and as such, there's much we can learn from it about how we should do ministry today, all right? And I believe that our, that our access to the Reformation, and I've already touched on this, has been obscured, tremendously obscured, by stereotypes and polemics. So a lot of what I want to do today is to get underneath and behind those stereotypes and polemics and help you understand. I want to illustrate a couple of stereotypes with stories that I learned in studying history. One of them... The, the, I remember the day that this way of reading history, all right, not reading it through the lens of the 20th century, but really trying to get into the mind of the people that lived there, um, first occurred to me. I was writing a master's thesis on a little-known French 
uh, theologian, a Protestant theologian named Pierre Viret. He was an associate of Calvin's and kind of a popular evangelist who traveled around southern France and preached Calvinist doctrine. He was very popular at the time. And I'm reading this sermon that he wrote. He delivered to people. It was actually on the doctrine of predestination, all right, which is why I was reading it. But there is this throwaway line in the sermon where all of a sudden he starts upbraiding his congregation for wearing, for wearing the word of God. Or like cutting out Bible verses and pinning it onto their clothes. And he basically said, you don't wear it, you read it. And then, and then, or you listen to it. And then he kind of goes back to his main theme. And it, it was just a throwaway line. But in a moment, in a flash of insight, a whole vista opened up before me of a, of a type, a way of being Christian in the 16th century that had never occurred to me. Namely, I had always thought of the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura the way I would interpret it today. Namely, that the Reformation was all about putting the Bible in the hands of the common people so they could discern the Word of God. That that was a very appealing message. And all of a sudden, I saw people who were brought up to a tactile form of religion and were familiar with the relics of the saints. And, you know, maybe you have a relic of St. Anne that you wear around your neck and you go on pilgrimage and you, you try to engage the holy through, through, through tactile and sensory or sacramental means. And now you hear these preachers promulgating the power of the word of God and the word of God and the word of God. And you assimilate that to a form of spirituality with which you're more familiar. So you rip it up, stick it in your cup pocket. You see what I'm saying? And I thought, no, that's, that's, a, that's a vision of religious life, a, a, a strange amalgam of a certain kind of pre-modern uh, unlearned in Catholicism with Reformation doctrine that had never occurred to me before. I want to investigate that. And so I did my doctoral research on the sort of the interplay between learned and elite forms of religion and then popular spirituality. And what I found was there was a tremendous amount of information that had never been plumbed looking at the Reformation through these lenses. Um, and, and I want to illustrate why this obscured, why this failure obscures our understanding of the Reformation. I thought my entire life that the doctrine of sola scriptura was a bid for the private reading of the Bible. Right? And that is the way it has always been presented to me in the modern world and in my church growing up. You have to read the Bible. You have to have your quiet time. You have to study the Bible. Study, study, read, read, quiet time, quiet time. That was the way... Sola Scriptura was always taught to me. And, and, I, and when I was in seminary, I had, I had seminary professors that said this is what the Reformers were teaching and promulgating. And the whole first book of Calvin's Institutes, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages long, which glorifies the power and the authority of the Word of God, I always read through those lenses. Oh, Calvin wants me to pick up and read the Bible and understand it. And it was only after I spent several years reading Calvin's sermons and letters and and uh, juridical decisions of the Genevan church courts and all the rest of it, that I began to realize Calvin never asks anybody to read the Bible. Never. He asks them to sit and listen while he preaches about it. And in fact, when people do sit down and read the Bible for themselves and come up with a novel interpretation that conflicts with Calvin, he, he has them arrested. There was a very celebrated case in 1551 when a learned physician who had been Catholic and became Protestant named Jerome Bolsick came into the city of Geneva and listened to a public sermon given by one of Calvin's associates. And after he read it, after he heard it, he said, well, I don't agree with that. And he stood up in the, it was kind of a meeting like this. It wasn't a church service. And he stood up in the meeting and he gave out his own interpretation of scripture and why he thought the, the minister was incorrect. And for that temerity, he was arrested and thrown in prison 
and Calvin tried to have the man executed. And in prison, he, he sought to engage Calvin in a theological debate to actually argue the issue out. And, and Bolsik said this, he says, he wrote a letter to the city council and he says, does not Calvin confess that all the articles of faith and the doctrines taught in our Lord's church must be proved from several manifest and evident statements of scripture, which cannot be construed in diverse ways and from the authority of the Holy Scripture in its entirety? In other words, Bolsik articulated very much a, a doctrine of the Bible that I would have been familiar with as a young Protestant. Hey, I should be able to read the Bible. I have the Spirit of God the same as you. See what I can find from it. If it doesn't accord with what you say, then I should have a right to challenge you. And Calvin would have none of it. Try, shut Bolsik down and tried to have him executed. And I began to see, okay, at least in the mind of this one very influential reformer, Sola Scriptura didn't mean anything like what I thought it meant. And in fact, we're going to find out what Calvin meant by it was in order to curb all the social disorder and, and, and emergent denominationalism, there needs to be one coherent theological voice, namely Calvin's, with the authority to teach from the scriptures directly for the common people to submit to. Now, how was that different from the papacy in Calvin's mind? Well, in Calvin's mind, the papacy just didn't teach the Bible. That just wasn't what their spirituality was about. So sola scriptura for him meant a return to the primacy of scripture rather than the primacy of the Roman mass. You see, it's a, it's a completely different construal of what these terms that we're so familiar with meant in the 16th century. Are you following me? Are you with me? Now, this is subtle stuff. So if I start to lose you, let me know, because I'm giving out things that I'm fairly sure you haven't heard before, okay? I want to give you one other example of how modern stereotypes of the Reformation obscure what actually took place. And in fact, some of these stereotypes are grounded in the polemics of the 16th century itself. When you're a Protestant child, one of the sort of archetypal legendary moments that you are raised up on is Luther's so-called tower experience. In about 1519, Luther's sitting in a tower in, in, uh, in Germany, and he's puzzling over the words of St. Paul, and he has this epiphany, this moment of enlightenment, where he comes up with his novel doctrine of justification by faith alone. And all of a sudden, he describes, you know, sort of the heavens are opened and the light of God is shining down upon him. And it's this real moment of illumination, and all the fetters are thrown off, and suddenly he realizes he's saved by faith alone. All right. Well, that, that sort of archetypal moment in Luther's life becomes a model for Protestant spirituality and for little Protestant kids down through the ages. Just this week, in fact, I had a guy call the radio show, and he, he was contrasting his understanding of justification with the Catholics in terms of this, you know, uh, George Washington and the cherry tree kind of, kind of legend, okay? Um, and, uh, and so the way Protestants are taught this story is that Luther's experience is emblematic. It's sort of symptomatic of the whole thrust of late medieval spirituality. And they depict all 16th century Catholics or 15th century Catholics as effectively neurotic nutjobs who are always sitting around chewing their fingernails off in anxiety over their salvation. Okay. And that's the way it's depicted. Now, interestingly, that, that picture of religious life in the 16th century gets picked up as a propaganda trope in 16th century France. And so you find somebody like Calvin, who, when he writes to the, the Catholic bishop Sadoletto, Calvin says this, he says, pious consciences, which formerly boiled with perpetual anxiety, have at length begun, after being freed from that dire torment, to rest with confidence in the divine favor. So you see, this is how Calvin depicts the Reformation. We were all these you know, neurotic OCD people who were fearful for our salvation, and we lived you know, under the torture of the confessional, 
And now with justification by faith, the heavens are open and we all finally have these freed consciences. Right? So he depicted the pre-Reformation Europe as this very kind of neurotic, uh, self-obsessed kind of spirituality. Then I started studying Calvin, and I studied his pastoral ministry in Geneva, and I studied his own life, and I discovered a problem. That picture of Catholic life was nowhere in, past, in Calvin's pastoral ministry. In fact, he spent his entire pastoral career in Geneva trying to combat the opposite problem, people that had a very little developed sense of sin. His problem was with libertines, people who wanted to take moral license as the guide rather than, rather than dealing with their own neurotic obsessions. And when I began to study Calvin's own life, I realized that Calvin himself had very little sense of personal sin. In his own narrative of his own conversion, there is no tower moment. There's no moment where he lived in neurotic guilt and suddenly comes to see the light and he's liberated. For Calvin, it was all about an intellectual realization that he had been given the task of teaching truth. Right? It was an it was a it was a he was an ideologue who had risen to the to the moment and now was going to be able to liberate Europe. All right. So it's a completely different narrative of conversion in Calvin's own life. And I began to realize this story of the neurotic 16th century Catholic who's tortured by the confessional and has no assurance of salvation is a fiction. It was true of Luther because of his own particular personality, but it became a propaganda trope in the literature that has been inherited down to this day, and it actually obscures the nature of the reasons that people became Catholic. Okay? Um, now, the way I would characterize this today, if you want to know what, say, Donald Trump thinks, would you ask Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> All right? If you want to know what the, what the policies and the philosophies of the Republican Party are, you're not going to ask Bernie Sanders. And similarly, if you want to know what makes Barack Obama tick, you're not going to ask George Bush, right? Because what you're going to get is a propaganda tool. You're going to get a, a images drawn from the language of propaganda and political ideology. You're not actually going to get uh, decent historical analysis. All right? And that's what we're up against in trying to understand the Reformation. All right, so you guys still with me? All right, now, um, in brief, what I got at all, all of this was a deep appreciation for... The doctrines of Catholicity, unity, liturgy, sacramental realism, church authority, all of these very, very Catholic ideals were taught by the Reformers themselves. And they latched onto the language of Luther's peculiar theology, his justification by faith and grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, as the vehicle to break away from what they viewed as an inefficient, corrupt, uh, bureaucratic Roman hierarchy but in order to come back to an essentially Catholic vision of reform. All right? They wanted to teach the centrality of the liturgy, of the authority of the church embodied in a God like Calvin, all right? the doctrines of grace and the sacraments and so forth. And what's happened now 500 years later is that the essentially Catholic impetus behind the Reformation has been lost and has been obscured under these few abstract formula that have taken on the character of historical polemics. So, so Studying this out as a historian, when I began to see the Catholic intent of the reformers, all right, and the confused state of scholarship about it, I began to realize there's, there's a deeper reality here than I've been led to, led to consider. Now, those bells are driving me nuts. Okay. Um, so to unpack this, I want to start with a question. Now, I've already set you up, okay? I've already set you up so you kind of know where I'm going. Why was there a Reformation? Now, 
I've already, I've already kind of told you where I'm not going. But if I were to ask, the, if I had to set you up, or if I had to ask this question to another audience, what do you think the most common response is to the question, why was there a Reformation? Exactly, exactly. The most common perception is that the Reformation happened as a response to corruption in the church and the sale of indulgences and the like. All right. And you will hear that from Protestants and you will hear that from Catholics. Now, I have two things to say about it. Number one, Luther himself explicitly repudiates that interpretation of the Reformation. Okay, I'm going to read to you a passage from a book that Luther wrote in 1525 called On the Bondage of the Will. It was a response to a treatise written by Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus was a Catholic polemicist and a humanist and the greatest scholar of his age. And when Erasmus took up the pen against Luther, he didn't attack Luther on uh, his doctrine of authority or, or his rejection of indulgences. He attacked Luther precisely on the question of the freedom of the will. He said, Luther, you deny the freedom of the will, and that's the key issue. And Luther writes Erasmus back, and he says this to Erasmus. I greatly commend, and I extol you for this thing also, that you are the only man of all my antagonists that has attacked the heart of the subject, the head of the cause, instead of wearing me out with those extraneous points, the papacy, purgatory, and indulgences, and a number of like topics, which may more fitly be called trifles than matters of debate. A sort of chase in which nearly all my opponents have been hunting me hitherto in vain. You are the single and solitary individual who has seen the hinge of the matter in dispute and hath aimed at the neck, and I thank you for this from my heart. Luther himself said the matter of indulgences, papacy, purgatory, and the like were trifles, not matters of debate. So the first problem with interpreting the Reformation as a response to corruption is that the main dude in the Reformation says that's not what it was about. Okay. Now there's another problem with attributing the Reformation principally to corruption. How many of you think that corruption in the 16th century Catholic Church was something new? Anybody here want to take that vote? Okay, no. Now, if you've ever read the, the documents of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, so we're talking 300 years before the Reformation. It was, in large part, a, a reforming council to deal with corruption and abuse. Okay, so this is something that's been going on a long time in the church. Uh, anybody here ever heard of St. Peter Damien? St. Peter Damien wrote a book called the Liber Gamorianus in the 11th century, which was an attack on the sexual immorality being practiced by the Catholic clergy at the time. All right, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, all right, one of the, one of the great Greek fathers of the church, all right, became 5th century Patriarch of Constantinople. He didn't want the job. You know why? Because of all of the corruption in the church in 5th century Constantinople. All right? If you've read the canons of the Council of Nicaea, they're replete with directives to eliminate corruption in the church. Okay? Um, how many people have ever read the, the biblical book of 3rd John? It's in the Bible, right? It's in the 27 books of the canonical New Testament. 3rd John. Well, the issue in 3rd John is diatrophies. Diotrephes is a corrupt Catholic bishop all right, who was kicking people out of the church because they were loyal to St. John. All right. In other words, how many people think we've gotten rid of corruption today? <laughs> all right. There has never been an era in the church's history in which there were not corruption. If corruption were a sufficient explanation for the Reformation, then we should have been having Reformations every five minutes for the last 2,000 years. 
All right. But the point of fact is the peculiar form of reformation that took place in 16th century Europe and in Saxony and France especially all right, is something that emerged only in that peculiar place and time in history and no place else in the world. You don't see a Protestant Reformation popping up in Coptic Egypt in the 5th century, and it wasn't because the Copts were so unbelievably pure. Oh, I mean, I like the Copts. Fine, I'm not taking out on the Copts, but you see my point. Okay. So what did change? If it wasn't the, pres the, the presence of corruption in the church, what changed was the perception of corruption in the church how people at the time viewed the reality of corruption and what ought to be done about it, and how they thought they should respond to it. All right? And in particular, where did the idea come from that you should respond to corruption through primitivism? All right? a, a key dogma of the Reformation is that we should return to the early church, to a pristine form of Christianity in antiquity, and that's the way to deal with corruption. Where did that idea come from? Question, does the New Testament endorse the doctrine of primitivism? Does the New Testament itself ever tell us that the New Testament is an ideal expression of Christian life to which we should return? No, nearly every letter of the apostles in the New Testament is dealing with the problem of corruption. All right? There's nothing in the data of the New Testament that suggests that the New Testament era is ideal. Far from it. All right? If anything... The, doctrine, the, the, the historical doctrine embedded in the New Testament is eschatological and developmental. The kingdom of God here in seed, that then will grow to be like the great tree with the olive branches with all the birds come and nest. It would suggest the opposite dynamic, one of, 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 of developing and increasing elaboration and holiness over time, not the opposite, which is primitivism. So where does the idea of primitivism come from? You don't find it in St. Augustine, right? Augustine has no doctrine of Christian primitivism. All right. He does have a respect for tradition, but that's a different thing. In fact, Augustine has, if anything, a far more cyclical view of history, that we're going to have to like, be born again every generation in, in, in every human soul until the end of the time, because the problem of sin and corruption and, and death and hell and the devil is never going to end right, until the coming of Christ. There's no doctrine of primitivism per se. You don't get it in Eusebius. He thinks the kingdom of God has come with Constantine. All right. So you're not going to get primitivism out of these early documents. So where does this idea come from? Any ideas? What do you think? How many people have heard of St. Odo of Cluny? St. Odo of Cluny. All right. What characterizes the spiritual life of medieval Europe more than anything else? Benedictine monasticism. All right. Telling, then, I should start with the discussion of my son and his experience. Right. Benedictine monasticism is the most characteristic feature, the most defining feature of spirituality in the Latin West for a thousand years. All right. And what do you know about the character of Benedictine monasticism? They change things up a lot from day to day, don't they? <laughs> no, the Benedictines do the same blooming thing day in and day out, year after year for centuries, right? They stick to the rule. You know, there's a joke about religious orders, and some of you have heard this one, right? So there's a bunch of priests that get together to pray the divine office, the liturgy of the hours at night, okay? And the lights go off, and nobody can see their bravery. Well, the Benedictines just keep on going. The Dominicans pray for enlightenment. <laughs> the Carmelites thank God for the gift of darkness. <laughs> and the diocesan priest goes in the basement and flips the fuse switch. <laughs> okay. Well, what happens to the Benedictine order after about, say, 800 years? Or no, no, I say, say 300 years, 400 years. Well, people become lax in following the rule. 
they fall away from strict adherence to the rule of St. Benedict. All right? If you've ever read Abelard, you know the story of Eloise and Abelard, great sort of flashy soap opera romance from the, uh, from the 12th century in Paris. All right? Abelard, after, after he's, um, I won't say it, uh, gives up on Eloise. He, he goes off and tries to reform a monastery, and the monks all try to kill him because they're basically just pensioners. They've quit practicing any kind of monastic life at all, and they all keep mistresses, and you know the beer barrel's real thick, and you know, they're just living off the, the fat of the monastery, and he's trying to pull them back, and they try to assassinate him. That, that kind of thing was not all that uncommon. So in the 9th century, um, in early 10th century, you get a movement to call the monastic communities back to the pristine early rule of the Benedictine order. And no place did this happen more than in the monastery, the Benedictine monastery of Cluny, under the guidance of St. Odo of Cluny. Okay? And he was so effective in doing it that Odo and Cluny, with papal blessing, begins to promote this idea. It's called the Cluniac Reform. They begin to promote this idea of the Cluniac Reform and a return to the pristine Benedictine rule of the early centuries throughout the monasteries of Europe. All right? And so the idea of primitivism originally had nothing to do with the New Testament per se. It was a return to the early Benedictine rule. And that ideology gets, gets sort of shifted throughout all of Europe and all the Benedictine communities, and especially through the work of Odo and, uh, and the Cluniacs. Now, it has an effect on one very influential person. All right, A fellow by the name of, uh, of Hildebrand, who became Pope Gregory VII and reigned from 1073 to 1085. All right, Gregory VII is a saint in the Catholic Church. All right, and inspired by the Cluniac Reform, which was primitivist, Gregory says, "Hey, why don't we do with the Universal Church what the Cluniacs did with the Benedictine Rule? Let's go back to an early, pristine model of Christian faith when everything was hunky dory and we lived by the rules." And in his mind, that now meant the canons, right? The early canons of the Church, and uh, and that'll be a way to deal with this corruption. So in fact, the central sort of ideological claim of the Reformation, that there is corruption, and that we should explain corruption by a departure from an early pristine model, is a Benedictine idea promulgated by the papacy. In other words, the Pope started the Reformation. Okay, for real. 500 years before Luther. Now, um, what happened uh, a century later? Well, that, oh, oh, Gregory does something else that's highly radical. Highly radical. He says to the lay people, I absolve you of your, of your obligation to obey corrupt bishops. Now, that's just astonishing, right? So he puts into the common mind, into the water, if you will, of, of medieval Europe, the idea that the laity should stand in judgment over the morals of the clergy as a tool to bring about the reforming of the church. All right, a direct appeal to the laity. Now, this direct appeal to the laity got taken up in a very, very powerful way in the religious movements of the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries by no one more effectively than St. Francis of Assisi in 1209. All right? And then St. Dominic, of course, in his order in 1216. And what do they do? Well, uh, Francis is animated by the idea that society is corrupt. Now, also, you have the advent of a money economy, which is something radically new in European history. We're moving away from manorialism, a money economy. And so, it now, so now the renunciation of property becomes something that's intelligible when you have some property to renounce, which they didn't have for a long time. And Francis goes out and does this very radical thing. Now religious are no longer bound within the confines of the monastery. Now we can take monastic spirituality and we can popularize it for the masses. 
And so Francis goes out and begins to preach this kind of spirituality, but now in the popular idiom, apart from the liturgy of the church, not in contradiction to, but in contradistinction to, and apart from the monasteries. And then Francis and Dominic and many of the other uh, reformers do something incredibly significant. Right? They begin to form little associations of pious faithful called confraternities or third orders. How many of you believe, how many of y'all belong to a third order? I know a couple of you do, right? Uh, somebody's not raising somebody's hand, but there are, there are, we have a Franciscan third order here, we have a Carmelite third order, we have a Dominican third order, all right, and they're con the confraternity of Christian mothers, I mean, these kinds of small group discipleship type things. It's the Franciscans that start this in the 13th century, okay? And they begin to form these little associations of pious faithful, and they grow like mad, they grow like wildfire across Europe for, for 300 years. There's a rosary confraternity in Cologne uh, that has uh, over 100,000 people in it, at the time of the Reformation. In Geneva, Switzerland, that had a population of about 10,000, there were about 60 confraternities that we know of. That's one confraternity for every, say, 150, 160 people, okay? So they're just tremendously engaged and very, very important, okay? Now, let me back up a little bit. Prior to this, to this explosion of lay piety in the religious movements, what does church spirituality look like in around the Carolingian era? Okay, so you know, uh, Charlemagne was crowned in 800. So say between 800 and the life of, um, of, of uh, Gregory VII. What does the spirituality look like? Okay, well, number one, it's intensely monastic. We already talked about that. Okay, outside of the monasteries, what does it look like? Well, the monasteries themselves had a really dim view of the world outside the monasteries. They thought it was almost impossible for people to be saved outside the monastic life. And that's true, right? Outside, it was heavily, again, tactile. And, and, uh, and the devotion to saints and the relics, which I embrace as a deeply Catholic pious practice and is a huge part of my own spirituality, but was a, 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 an incredibly important part of lay spirituality in the late Middle Ages. So much so that if you were known to be a pious hermit in, say, around the 11th or 12th centuries, um, they wouldn't let you leave town when you started feeling sick. This is true, all right? Because they didn't want you dying someplace else, all right? Because once you were dead, you were their hermit, all right? And, that, and you, they, that we got some relics going on right here, okay? And uh, there is a, and, and I read a doctoral dissertation one time called Farta Sancta. It was all about the problem of relic theft in the Middle Ages. So, you know, we know that they've got this, you know, pious ascetical hermit who lives, you know, walled up in a hole over here, and he just died. Let's, let's go steal his relics at night so we can have some relics too in our, in our community. And, um, there were relic salesmen that would run around sell spurious relics all the time. And there's a story, I'm not sure if this one's true, but it's, it captures the spirit of the age, I think, pretty well, of uh, the relic salesman who shows up and tells the community that he's got the head of John the Baptist. And I said, we are not such idiots. We have already got the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> and he says, no, no, you don't understand. I have the head of John the Baptist as a child. <laughs> And, uh, and so what's going on in the Mass? And this is incredibly important, okay? So uh, how many people have been to Paris and been to Notre Dame? Notre Dame de, de Paris, okay? Well, when you go there, what do you notice about the high altar? If you notice the high altar, th there's this screen. Well, they've moved it up, right? But formerly, you can imagine, they had this giant screen, all right? Huge screen. It's called a rude screen that blocks off the high altar and what's going on at the high altar from the people down here, all right? Another thing you notice, you see this at St. Bernard's Abbey, also the Abbey Church as well, you see all these little side altars all up and down the side of the church, right? Now, I want you to imagine, I want you to go back in time, and I want you to imagine a time when at the high altar, 
there's a priest who's saying Mass, and it's not the Tridentine Mass, right? That doesn't come until the 16th century. We don't know what version of the Mass it was. There were many in competition back then. And his, he is, he, he, he's not just got his back to the congregation, he's hidden behind the root screen. There is no chance whatsoever at all that you have any clue what he's saying. Now he's speaking in a very quiet voice. It's not, the, it's not even the formalized Tridentine Mass, all right? He's, he's speaking in a very low voice behind a root screen with his back to you, maybe, maybe you know, ranked by a couple of the clerics. At the same time, you may have priests at every one of these side altars. They're called mass priests that are saying masses simultaneously. And there are lines of lay people up behind them who are going to pay a stipend to have a mass said for their intentions. All right? And the people that are engaged in the liturgy of the high altar, if, if anything, they're going to be on their knees and they're going to be praying their rosaries or whatever their own private pious devotions are. And the only point of the mass where they connect is the elevation. And they know what happens at the elevation, right? They know that's really Jesus. That's why the elevation was instituted in the Latin Rite, because it was the only part of the Mass that the people would really connect to uh, in their own interior life, all right? So they knew the Mass was a sacrifice. They knew it was the sacrifice of Christ being represented in reparation for the sins of the world, and it had propitiatory value. That's why they were paying for them, you know, to all the Mass priests lined up, all right? But in terms of the nature of their own personal engagement in the Mass is something very, very different, all right? And easily assimilated to the very tactile, sort of relic-centric spirituality that they already knew. This is a source of power. I need this source of power. I'm going to come here. It's efficacious for my temporal and spiritual needs, all right? But in terms of an engagement with the kerygma, with the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the call to the ethical life and conversion and mysticism, that, that way of articulating the faith, which, of course, is deeply Catholic, and you find it in Augustine, is remote from the experience of your, most, of your average Carolingian lay Catholic, all right? But this is what the Franciscans begin to teach. The Franciscans begin to evangelize Europe in the 13th century. And they teach the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his significance for my life and the need for conversion. And they begin to call people away from a purely, you know, sort of tactile, this worldly, overly interested in, you know, can I get this relic to help my crops? I mean, there, there, were, there were exorcism rituals to get rid of elves and cast them out of your fields, you know, so you'd have a good harvest. We're going to move away from that kind of spirituality and get into the real imitation of Jesus. This is something that the Franciscans bring about, okay? Um, now, what does the spirituality look like? Preaching. Where does preaching happen in the 13th century? Not in the churches. It happens in the highways and the byways and the public squares as the Franciscans and the Dominicans go out to preach the gospel, all right? So where do you engage the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the imitation of Christ? Not in Mass. With the Franciscans and the Dominicans. Preaching on the highways and the byways. It's the gospel message. It's good stuff. All right? And it's not in competition with the Mass, but it is in contradistinction to the Mass. You follow me? All right? Very different way of construing the spiritual life. All right? And this is, of course, the evolution as Christianity is, is trying to penetrate into an essentially pagan culture that was Germanic and, and Scandinavian and, and, and uh, very, very, very different, all right? So by the time you run in the 12th Lateran Council, 4th Lateran Council in 1215, one of the things they try to deal with is trial by ordeal. And the council rules out, basically, you can no longer have trial by ordeal. How many people saw Monty Python's Holy Grail, all right? All right, it's a, it's a kind of a wicked satire, and I wouldn't recommend it, but there's a scene in the film where some villagers grab hold of a woman that they accuse of being a witch. And they say, we're going we're gonna to find out if she's a witch. And the way you know that she's a witch is that, you know, we throw witches in the water. And if they're witches, they float. Well, you know, what else floats? Well, wood floats and duck floats. 
So we're going to weigh the witch and see if she weighs the same as a duck, and if she is, then we know she's a witch and we'll burn her at the stake. All right. And it's just convoluted reason. That's, that's satirical, but there's an element of truth in it. All right. So this is what the church is trying to combat right, through elevating the level of lay consciousness, changing the law. I mean, we're dealing with a very, very illiterate and pagan culture. It takes centuries to evangelize them. All right. Now, so after the Franciscans have done their work, all right, and they've done their evangelism, and they've preached the imitation of Christ, and they formed the confraternities, okay, and they've tried to elevate the level of lay spirituality, and they've responded to the call of the Pope to go back to primitive Christian culture, which for them means, for Francis, means a return to the gospel, to the gospel values of renunciation and poverty. And once they've done their work, now we're 300 years into this papal reformation, 400 years into this papal reformation, where are we on the eve of Luther's reformation? What does lay spirituality look like? What does Catholic life look like on the eve of Luther's Reformation? Now, that's what I'm going to speak about today a little bit, just a little bit. Fortunately, with the advent of printing in the 1450s, the most popular form of literature was religious literature. And one of the book genres that was a bestseller at the time were prayer books. Prayer books instructing the laity in how to go to Mass and how to participate in the liturgy and how to have a spiritual life unbelievably popular literature. I mean, we have the, the, uh, the wills and testaments of, of book dealers that died in early 16th century Europe who left inventories of tens of thousands of copies. Right? That's just what they were inventorying, and that's just like one bookseller in Paris. You multiply this across all the big cities of, of Europe. Now, um, I want to take just one illustration. How many people have read the story of a soul by Therese of Lisieux? Do you remember a passage in Therese of Lisieux where she talks about bringing the blessed bread home from Mass? It's, a, it's just one tiny little line. She talks about going to Mass and getting the blessed bread and bringing it home. Right? It didn't make an impression on anybody here, obviously. Right? But she does talk about it. Right? What the heck was blessed bread? Remember I said that we've been developing forms of communal life and pious devotions and spiritualities that are complementary to, but distinct from, the spirituality of the Mass. Well, Father's up there behind the root screen. We don't know what he's about. But we now know something. 300 years into the Papal Reformation, we now know something about spiritual participation in Christ and how we all are one body in Jesus. So why don't we come up with a symbol, right? A form of like devotional worship where we can all affirm our commonality in Jesus and our spiritual unity. Hmm, I wonder what that should be. And so they take unconsecrated bread, and the priest blesses it as a sign of their spiritual unity in Christ. Excuse me, guys. Did you think that maybe the Eucharist could have been that? They didn't, actually. All right? And so there's a moment in the worship when the lay people pass around a loaf of unconsecrated but blessed bread as a sign of their corporeal, excuse me, of their spiritual unity in the body of Christ. It's a bizarre thing for obvious reasons. It's a good thing we don't have this practice anymore. Okay? Um, they also would pass around a board, a piece of wood called a pax board. And you can see images of these in the prayer books. It would, have, it would be a piece of wood with may, maybe, say, a lamb or some sign of Christ imprinted on the, on the wood. Okay? And they would pass the wood around, and they would kiss this piece of wood and pass it to the next guy, again, as a, size, as a sign of their solidarity in the, in the corporate fellowship of Christ, which is the church. Okay? Now, one of the prayer books from the 1450s, or early 16th century, gives this instruction about the reception of the Pax board, not the Eucharist, the Pax board. 
No one should take the pack's board if he has not fasted and is without mortal sin. For whoever takes it in great faith receives the body of our Lord spiritually and participates in all the goods done by the entire Holy Christian Church. This is a doctrine of spiritual participation, which ought to be directed towards the Eucharist, but was being directed towards the Pax Board, a, a lay devotional practice that was in context of, but conceptually distinct from, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. You follow me? You still with me? All right. Now, commentary on the Gospels from 1522 in the Diocese of Meaux by the Catholic reformer Jacques Lefebvre de Tapla. And de Tapla writes this, Great is the faith which knows that Christ is corporeally where he is sacramentally. Okay, so de Tapla says, it's good to believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He just confesses that. So he's orthodox. He's orthodox. But it is greater to know that he is corporately present absolutely everywhere. For the one is to know without means, the other with means. The faith which is without means, however, is greater than the faith with means. Now, de Tapla has just articulated a completely orthodox spiritual perspective, and I'm not going to go in because I'm going to run out of time, why his relative ranking of spiritual versus corporeal is actually an orthodox framing of the issue. But he's, he's dealing with a form of spirituality at a time of the church's history in which in these confraternities, in these third orders, we have lay people wearing vestments, celebrating quasi-liturgical uh, ceremonies, passing around blessed bread, passing around pax boards, and affirming their spiritual participation with Christ in one another as something that is intrinsically superior to the Mass. And they're all Orthodox, and none of them reject the Catholic Church. You with me? All right, so I've just shown you that in around 1500, all right, you have proto-Protestant congregations already in existence all over Europe, embracing a form of spirituality that is a hair's breadth away from Zwinglianism. That's the Reformed Protestant tradition of the 1520s. A hair's breadth away from Zwinglianism. And the entire thing is a product of the reforming impetus of the Catholic Church inaugurated by Gregory VII and embraced with enthusiasm by the religious orders like the Franciscans and the Dominicans. You with me? Okay, if I'm not making sense to somebody, ask a question. Because I know this is... I know you've never heard this before, but I'm documenting, I'm showing you the texts, okay? Now, at the same time this is going on, the spirituality is intensely anti-clerical. So there's a heavy sentiment of resentment against the clergy and the quality of the clergy. And again, the Franciscans themselves are partly to blame. Do you know where the doctrine of the papal antichrist comes from? Who first articulated the thesis that the Pope was the antichrist? The Franciscans. It wasn't the, it wasn't the Lutherans, okay? Um, Anti-clericalism is rife, all right? Thomas More, St. Thomas More, complained that the quality of the clergy would go up a lot if we ordained fewer men, okay? In other words, the church had been wildly successful in her evangelistic enterprises. She had created a culture absolutely effervescent with spirituality. You got guys getting ordained left, right, and center. The, the, the mass is celebrated everywhere always, and people are queuing up for those private masses like crazy, like anybody's business. So the place is absolutely suffused in religiosity, all right? 
And so the, the weakness and the pastoral failure of the clergy is on display for everybody to see everywhere, right? The quality would go up if we ordained fewer men, says Thomas More, all right? Chaucer, Erasmus, More, Rabelais, Catholics, all of them, and deeply anti-clerical in their writings, a lot of them, criticizing the failures of the clergy right and left, okay? On the eve of the Reformation, Christian society was already religiously and doctrinally divided in ways that would anticipate elements of Protestant theology, which divisions that had Catholic origins, and the propaganda about abuse and corruption was already longstanding before Luther comes on the scene. Right. So, what caused the Reformation? Corruption is, is a grossly insufficient explanation. Okay, so now let's turn pivot a little bit to Luther. Okay. Why did Luther do what he did? All right. What motivated him? Now, um, the age was also characterized by a certain amount of eschatological anxiety. Okay. You ever heard of the flagellantes? So it's a, it's a heretical sect in the, in the 15th and 14th centuries of people that went around beating themselves, all right, trying to, trying to uh, appease God to, uh, to get rid of the plague. Okay? Again, I hate to go back to Monty Python, but it's a common cultural reference. If you remember the monks walking around beating themselves in the head, singing P.A. Jesu Domine, that happened. Okay? That happened. All right? Now, so this is the culture in which Luther grows up. Now, what Luther had going for him that they didn't was, number one, Luther was absolutely scintillatingly brilliant. He was a genius theologian, and there's no denying the fact he was an absolutely brilliant human being. He also, and I, this is my own personal opinion, but I'm utterly convinced, suffered from a very intense form of obsessive-compulsive disorder, scrupulosity type, and was likely bipolar, right, if we put him on the couch. Because he meets the description perfectly. He was always cycling back and forth between these tremendous highs and these desperate lows. And uh, when he was on the highs, he thought he was in heaven and speaking to angels. And when he was in the lows, he thought the devil was ripping his heart out. Okay? And, and there's more going on in his refutation of the indulgence practice than just a response to abuse. Luther's own neuroticism is deeply enmeshed in his theological critique. Thesis 15 from the 95 Theses, Luther, Luther writes about the fear and horror of hell that he experiences on a daily basis. And he says this fear or horror is sufficient in itself to constitute the penalty of purgatory since it is very near the horror of despair. We don't need purgatory because life itself is purgatory. My life, the torture that I experience. This is Luther's position. Anfektun is the German word for trial or temptation. Luther says, I went where my anfektun took me. It wasn't understanding or reading or speculation, but living, nay, rather dying and being damned that makes a theologian. He theologizes out of his own personal experience of neuroticism and guilt and fear and anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. All right. The personality of Luther and his tremendous intellect is an incredibly important point in the development of Reformation theology, okay? And as I already said, what he does is he essentially theologizes his own neuroticism, and it becomes a propaganda trope picked up by guys like Calvin for purposes that are radically different than the ones that Luther anticipated, okay? And the interpretation and the reception of Luther is something very different from Luther himself. Luther sets off, Luther touches this world of late medieval piety that I've just described to you, with, with one final theological key, he drops a match on a tender that's ready to explode into anti-clerical rebellion, all right? 
And his brilliant but neurotic personality was the key that set the whole thing going. All right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the, about the reception of Luther. Not Luther himself, but the reception of Luther in his novel doctrines of justification by faith and scripture alone and all the rest of it. In the Diocese of Meaux, where Jacques Lefebvre de Tapla lived, the professional classes and the cloth workers in particular were, were likely to become Protestant. Okay, Why the cloth workers? Why not other people? I'll come back to that. There's a cloth worker by the name of Nicolas Boivin who was arrested for heresy in Troyes in 1528 in, in interrogation by the Inquisition. Nicolas says this, there are many of us who study the Bible in the books of Luther of Germany. Now, could you have had a Nicholas of Boivin a hundred years earlier? Because there were no books. There were no books. There are many of us who study, see how technology played a role. There are many of us who study the Bible in the books of Luther of Germany. After we have read him, we go out preaching through the country, and there is no doctor or cleric who can stop us. No one is ever damned but the evil rich. What stands out in Nicholas's testimony? It's certainly not his tormented conscience, is it? No, it's not. Okay, But his anti-clericalism, his class envy, and his sense of personal dignity, I too can read the scripture and preach, and no cleric can stop me. You see how Luther is being assimilated, he's being received and interpreted by a cloth worker in Mo in a way that's very foreign to the way Luther himself understands the gospel. In the city of Lyon in France, you know who became Protestant at disproportionately large numbers? It was printer's journeymen. Right, the, the profession of the printer's journeyman. They were much more likely, disproportionately more likely to become Protestant. Why? What was it about printer's journeymen? Okay. These guys were the computer programmers in Silicon Valley of the 16th century. Printing, of course, was the new thing. It was the in thing. It was the intellectual profession. All right. These guys were the, were the warp and woof. They were the glue that held the whole thing together, just like a computer programmer in Silicon Valley working for Google knows that he's on the cutting edge of the next big thing. These guys were on the cutting edge of the next big thing in a society that did not have room culturally for the next big thing. All right. And they embraced the doctrines of the Reformation as so much liberation and, and gratification of their growing and emergent sense of personal dignity. All right? It wasn't Luther's self-hatred and his, and his uh, tormented conscience. It was the idea that now we're onto something and we too matter. We have the priesthood of all believers. We can read the Bible. Heck, we're printing the Bible. All right? Printer's journeyman became Catholic, excuse me, became Protestant. Disproportionately large numbers compared to the rest of the population until the 1550s. When the Protestant church began to clamp down and define the authority structures of their own communities, and then all the printers journeymen went back and became Catholic again because life there was more lax. Okay. That's true. That's true. Okay. All right. Um, Florimond de Raymond was a French Catholic polemicist who studied the stuff contemporaneous, and he said that it was a certain nobility or independence that was the defining mark of those more likely to join the Reformation, that sense of self-importance. Okay, And then the printing press itself, 1450. Religious literature, far and away the most popular. Um, already talked about that. Okay, um, Along with the literature came the money. 
the economy, the age of exploration, we're talking about a period of history that's very different from the social world of the 11th century or the Carolingian Empire. All right? The social location, location of Catholics has changed, and the pastoral ministry of the church has not caught up to them. All right? Now, that's where we are today, by the way. The social location of Catholics has changed. All right? We are no longer an immigrant population living in urban centers in ethnic enclaves. Your Polish Catholics, your Italian Catholics, your Irish Catholics, all right? Where, where, where father doesn't have to worry about living alone because he's got 32 cousins, nephews and nieces all living in this little Catholic enclave, all right? And, you know, that's no longer the Catholic world that we live, but it's taken us 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years after that to begin to realize that the pastoral ministry and philosophy of the church has to catch up to, you know, look, the grandchildren of those people are now entrepreneurs, and they run some of our best restaurants in town, you know? I mean, they're not living down there anymore. And uh, they live over the mountain. They live other places, all right? And we've got a different social location, and the church has to catch up to it. All right, one more. The Affair of the Placards, L'Affaire des Placards, 1534. Now, I'm illustrating here the reception of Luther, not Luther himself, but the reception of Luther. What motivated people to buy into this Reformation? So in 1534, there are posters that go up all over the city of Paris. Okay? They're attacking the holy sacrifice of the mass, written by Protestant propagandists. We know today they were written by Antoine Marcour. Marcour was a humanist scholar. He was inspired by Rabelais' satire. All right, so that's the kind of vein he's coming out of. Now, uh, the people putting the posters up, attacking the mass, did a stupid thing. They put one inside the king's bedroom door. Okay, this would be like posting communist propaganda in Eisenhower's bedroom during the McCarthy hearings. Okay, um, because kingship in France was considered to be a sacral reality, and attacking the Eucharist was tantamount to attacking the monarchy. François Ier responded by hanging a bunch of Protestants off the balcony of his palace in Amboise. But I want to look at the text of the placards. What do they actually attack? All right. Now we're dealing in popular literature. We're not looking at Luther. We're looking at the kind of, I mean, literally, we're looking at posters, tracts, and treatises being passed out on the street side corners to people in France, okay? Did they say, did they say, ease your conscience by adopting the doctrine of justification by faith, at all, uh, faith alone? Is that what they said? It's not what they said. I'm going to read this passage. By the Mass, holy, ma holy Mass, by the Mass, the poor people are like ewes or miserable sheep kept and maintained by these bewitching wolves. Who are the bewitching wolves? The priests, okay? Then eaten and gnawed and devoured. Is there anyone who would not say or think that this is larceny and debauchery? By this mass they have seized and destroyed and swallowed up everything. They have disinherited kings, princes, nobles, merchants, and everyone else imaginable, either dead or alive. Because of it, they live without any duties or responsibilities to anyone or anything. Pause. Is that true? What was their principal responsibility? To say the Mass. Okay. By this Mass, they live without any duties or responsibilities to anyone or anything, even the need to study. The Mass is bad because it absolves the priest of the obligation to study. Can you imagine a peasant in Carolingian Europe making that complaint about the Catholic Church? It's unintelligible, unintelligible. But it illustrates the change in social location between the 12th century and the 15th century. That now to criticize the clergy for not being learned has some 
purchase. That has some polemical appeal, all right? Where did that idea come from? It's a, the massive social changes sweeping through Europe, speaking to a population that had already grown accustomed to developing their own spirituality out of their own prayer books and their own liturgies, okay? One, one polemicist said of the priest, it's only the mass, they say, they do nothing. That's kind of like saying the, the, the exterminator doesn't do anything except kill bugs. You know, I mean, like, what else did you want them to do? Okay. All right. So Luther's theology emerges from this idiosyncratic, subjective uh, domain, but he lights this tinderbox of disaffection and gives sort of uh, metaphysical teeth to a movement that was just waiting to break out, which was, again, in large part, the fruit of Catholic pastoral ministry in the form of the religious orders. Okay, now, um, I have got, I've been going an hour. I haven't touched on Calvin, who is my main man. I've got a lot to say about Calvin, all right? But I also understand that some of you have families and things that you need to do. So here's what I'll do. If, uh, I, will, I will offer a few summary thoughts, all right? And if you need to go, go. But if you'd like to stick around and talk about Calvin a little bit, we'll do that too. Okay, how's that sound? All right. So here are my, here are my summary thoughts. Then I didn't, what I didn't get into, let me just give you a preview of what I'm going to say about Calvin. So I've just painted a picture, right, of Europe in flames, of the Catholic world just torn asunder before the Reformation by a myriad of theologies, by anti-clerical sentiment, by, by, by radically divergent ways of relating to the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and people straining and yearning to find a way to make the gospel intelligible and live, live out authentically in their own lives, and they're doing it in Catholic ways, in ways that are fully orthodox, but rife with tension, all right? The, the people in the confraternities are orthodox, faithful Catholics that believe as Christ is present in the Mass, and yet there are pastoral tensions in the church that are not getting resolved. And Luther lights the tinderbox and poof, everything blows up. And guys like Nicolas Boivin take it in radically anti-authoritarian ways and become deeply socially revolutionary, all right? And so that the king is hanging people off the balconies at Ambroise, trying to stamp down this, this, this nascent rebellion of the populace that's clothed in Lutheran propaganda. That's where we are when Calvin comes on the scene. He's 26 years younger than Martin Luther. What does Calvin try to do to put the genie back in the box? Back in the lamp? All right, mixed metaphors, sorry. What does he try to do to put the genie back in the lamp? All right, Calvin articulates the most Catholic synthesis of Reformed doctrine of anybody in the 16th century, calling for the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the exclusive authority of the magisterium of the church to interpret the sacred tradition. And by the magisterium, of course, he means himself, all right? The, 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 the unity of the church and its Catholicity, all right? Intensely, intensely Catholic themes that Calvin is deriving from a, a, a deep knowledge of 15th century Catholic reformism and guys like Jean Gerson, who was a Catholic reformer present at the Council of Constance, okay? And, and, and so if you stick around, what I want to show you is how deeply Catholic Calvin's sentiments were, not his doctrines, but his sentiments. And then I want to show you why he failed. What was lacking? Why could he not accomplish that? Because the end result of all that was that reading through all of this stuff as a historian of myself and a deeply dogmatic Protestant who hated the Catholic Church, 
Calvin is the man who woke me up to the realization that I needed one holy Catholic apostolic church that conveyed to me the real presence of Christ in the sacraments for a transforming union that would make me more and more like Christ every day and that apart from the church, I was dead. It is a Protestant who woke me up to that realization. But then I simultaneously realized that Calvin sowed the seeds of his own destruction. And because of his commitment to ultimately to the Lutheran anomaly, all right, that it was doomed from the start and it led to the birth of modern Protestant denominationalism. And so I was forced with a dilemma. Either I take the Catholic elements in Calvin seriously, in which case I have to leave Calvin and become Catholic, or I have to take up the essentially sort of anomalous Lutheran elements in Calvin, which will lead me into modern evangelical Protestantism, but I have to give up the Catholicizing element. And then I said, which one is more primitive, right? Which one has actually reflected in the text of the New Testament in the early church? And I realized that I could have my cake and eat it too, that I could have everything that Luther wanted me to have, right? All that interior spirituality and assurance of, of grace and, and hope in Christ. I could have that whole cake in the Catholic church, but I could also have it conveyed to me through these sacramental and liturgical means that Calvin was preaching. So that's where I'm going to go. And the conclusion is going to be, what does that have to do with today? And I've already said this, that the Reformation happened in my view because the social location of Catholics changed and the pastoral ministry of the church did not catch up to it. Okay, And, and at the time, there were reformers who saw what was going on. And there were people like Francis de Sales, Francois de Sales, who was actually the Bishop of Geneva, believe it or not, although he never got to visit his see, who said, we need to teach people the life of prayer in the sacramental mysteries. We need to teach them how to embrace the holy sacrifice of the mass as their principal form of spirituality. So they're not having to get, they're not scratching that itch through the confraternities and through pax boards and blessed bread. They're getting it from Christ in the Eucharist, all right? And the very same sentiment is articulated by the Second Vatican Council in Sacrosanctum Concilium. And I'll read you the passage later, but basically it says, what we have to do as a church is teach people above all how they are to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass, not only through the hands of the priest, but also in their own lives. All right. So the Reformation sets before us a deep pastoral challenge that has never gone away. And the very same dynamic, why did you leave the church? Because I wasn't having my spiritual needs met. That's true. All right. And the pastoral challenge is to unfold for them the riches of the tradition, like I experienced at St. Bernard's, like we did today in Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It is a, it is a rich and ennobling catechetical burden, all right? And it's why I do what I do. It's why I'm in catechesis. It's why I'm in Catholic media. That's the challenge that I'm going to leave you with. So I'm going to stop there. And if you want to stick around and talk about Calvin, we'll do that too. But we'll take a, a, a pre-Calvin break if you want.